My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, I'm Rocka Spichelitis, founder of Contrarian Ventures, and I'm excited to host this series on the journey to net zero. Let's hear from my guest today. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to Coffin Fellows Podcast. It's really great to have you today, and thanks for taking the time to share your journey uh, with the broader community. Thanks, Travis. Great to, great to be here. So Andrew is, uh, is a managing partner at Obvious Ventures. Uh, you've had a really, really long-standing career in the clean tech sector, what was called before, and more climate tech, what we now realize to what, what we're trying to call it. Uh, I would like to start with just walking through your background and how you got to where you are now. How much time do we have? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I mean, I think, I think the abbreviated um, version and probably most relevant to this conversation is that um, I am a repeat found, venture-backed founder over uh, 20 years before joining venture. First in the internet 1.0 era in the mid 90s, I came first to Silicon Valley after school and was a product manager for a while and then helped with some great co-founders create a company called Big Step, which really is probably like a easiest way to describe it as an early, early Shopify mm -hmm. um, before people were really even using credit cards on the internet. And um, I think the relevant experience there is that in the late 90s, I went up and down Sand Hill Road pitching this company and really great, uh, well-informed venture capitalists would say things to me like, you know, I'm not sure that this internet thing is really going to be as big as you young people think. And, you know, maybe we'll never really see commerce take hold. And, and this was after Amazon had launched and there were a lot of really powerful indicators that that was, in fact, obviously not true. And then in 2002, when I sold that company, um, I decided to really focus my career, my off entrepreneurial spirits on uh, this thing called climate. And uh, I guess it sort of had a name then, later became clean tech. But at that point, Gore's movie hadn't come out. Climate change was almost like a, a thermostat setting. It wasn't something that people really focused on conceptually. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly not something that people focused on in business. And, and something happened, you know, I just, I just saw a convergence of um, transformative and enabling technologies just like we had with the internet five years before, starting to take shape on the horizon anyway. And when I went up and down Sand Hill Road, pitching solar to folks, they said the same things they said to me about the internet. You know, we're not sure this is really a thing. Yeah. Maybe you should go do a mobile gaming company, et cetera. That was which year? That was which year? Uh, that was 2002 and 2003. Okay. And, and that's what sort of made me realize, of course, I was on the right path. Uh, and I spent the next 10 years building um, a couple of different startups, one effectively a failure, some great technology and high concentration photovoltaics uh, and, and a great company, 
that we were not really going to where the clock was moving to, and instead we're sort of tracking against the state-of-the-art cost reduction in solar. Uh, and we realized that that China and a lot of other innovative companies around the world, um, in China and in the United States and some in Europe, had really um, taken the, the cost curve and, and crushed it. We shifted gears and built a company around just taking advantage of that and becoming a, a systems integrator. And that was a lot of fun. We built Google's corporate headquarters, the, at the time the largest corporate installation in the world of solar. And because of their leadership and, and vision, we were able to had you know put the stake in the ground around that customer and thus Disney and Sony and North Face and all these other companies followed as customers. So we sold that company um, in 2008 and uh, that led me on a really interesting global journey um, building, helping to build SunTech into one of the largest solar companies in the world. Yep. And I ended up running global sales there and sold something like five $5 billion worth of solar around the world. No, this is amazing. And that led you to then going from entrepreneurship to, to obvious to be an investor. There was one little step in the middle. Uh, I ended up working for one of my largest customers at SunTech uh, was Nextera Energy. And I ended up joining Nextera to build out a distributed generation uh, uh, business there, which has now turned into a pretty sizable business for Nextera. And what was exciting about that, I think it's important to just draw on it for a second. I mean, Nextera is a big lumbering um, energy company, owns Florida Power and Light, is one of the biggest energy companies in the country. And I just knew them as people who wanted to get their head around and get involved with the solar transition, but they were cautious and slow moving like a lot of energy or utility companies in the US. And what I found once I got there was it was actually exceptionally well run, very thoughtful, uh, not they didn't like the microphone. They didn't like to um, get out ahead of stories and be on the cover of magazines. They were just much more focused on building a great, sustainable, long-term business. And I learned a lot from that experience. Uh, it was humbling in some ways and, um, and powerful. And they are now the largest wind and solar owner in the country and one of the largest in the world. And then after doing that for a couple of years, uh, my partners, uh, James Joaquin, Vishal Vasish, and Ev Williams, who had founded um, Obvious Ventures came to me and said, hey, these, these are people I've known for uh, decades, actually. And they came and said, we're putting the band together and uh, we're going to take a slightly different uh, tack on how venture should work in the world and, and uh, a different lens to use as we look at deals to do. And it's really a no-brainer because of the people involved and because of the, the clarity of purpose. No, this is amazing. And, and that leads to sort of... Uh... And the next question, uh, before we go a bit deeper in obvious in your thesis. Uh, so you were sort of in the climate tech space uh, through the early days. So when, when I think, you know, there was this clean tech 1.0 bus, and I think everyone sort of says, you know, the best investors everywhere, to be honest, are the ones that went from all the booms and all the busts. Uh, and, and you were there in the driving seat, you know, building these businesses. And now you come to see really the space nourish into something that is really at the center of attention. You know, what, what have been, given that you were in the kind of, you know, next era now grew some, one of the biggest oil and gas companies in market cap, obviously, whether that's a, whether that's a, a, a good point to, to follow, but what, how do you think this experience uh, being in, in the driver's seat, building these companies helped you to sort of 
be a better investor and help to avoid maybe mistakes when you were starting to go and invest as being an investor in obvious ventures? Yeah, I mean, if scar tissue was the only measure of um, capability for success, uh, I'd be doing extraordinarily well in my current role. Uh, I think it does matter uh, going through the cycles, and um, some of my partners have also been through them uh, in the dot-com boom and bust and then in 2008. It, it is relevant, and understanding um, the failures and successes during those transitions in the market is important, but I think it's also really important to just be able to understand what's different this time mm -hmm. rather than looking at something and saying, you know, that's just not going to work. It didn't work before. Yeah. That's a, a probably a, a, a false premise for a lot of uh, poor decision-making. So um, interestingly, I think with the COVID transition a year ago, there were many, many uh, predictions of, absolute economic collapse, uh, particularly in, in venture and even in technology and technology purchasing. I remember a lot of people um, presuming that they'd see corporate budgets get slashed and everything tighten up. And instead, what we saw was this great leap forward um, in the adoption of technology. So the digitization revolution has been a 20-year uh, process, I think. And and it got a big acceleration as more and more online analogs like food delivery or a lot of different types of energy usage, et cetera, became much more distributed and digitized. So um, it's important to, it's great to have that history and that live through those experiences. It's also really important to remember that not everything, every aspect of history repeats itself, only certain pieces and being able to figure out what's different this time is one of the core differentiators. And what do you think is different this time comparing it? Yeah. I mean, when it, when it comes to climate tech, I think there are a couple of uh, huge differences uh, this time around. And I, I might even expand the lens a little bit to just think about sustainability overall. Yep. But, but, but just, just systems about, is something that you define broadly in, in your thesis and the fund. Yeah, and obviously we, we call it sustainable systems. I mean, an example, um, there's, there's tons to talk about with climate, but in things that are sort of um, uh, orthogonal or related, I might mention Beyond Meat, uh, one of our portfolio companies, or Diamond Foundry, a really exciting company that's growing uh, consumer-grade diamonds, very large diamonds uh, for consumer applications for rings and jewelry uh, in a lab from green energy. Uh, they are true diamonds, they're technically carbon sinks, but certainly one of the great things they're doing is um, from a social and environmental position, not just carbon specifically, but uh, mining and the horrible impact it can have on different communities and on different environmental uh, uh, ecosystems, that company is transformative. It is it's sort of the picture of sustainability in our minds and, and they represent a really powerful thing that is different from last time, which is that consumers are much, much more awake to the fact that they can have a big impact in how the world works mm -hmm. with their buying decisions. Same thing with Beyond Meat. I think when people realized they didn't have to compromise on the rings, they didn't have to compromise on the food they were eating, they could have great choices and they could make a difference with every dollar they spent. I think that that kind of awakening is quite different. It's also much different with younger folks, millennia, millennials and 
uh, Gen Zs are, are really starting to show up in, in how they want to spend their money. And I think that's a one-way street. I don't think that changed. I don't think they later on say, you know what, dirty and, and awful for the world is okay with me. This is a, uh, a choice they've made, and I think a choice that they're going to stick with. We, of course, we see it across generations, but particularly with younger ones and particularly where the buying power is today. So that's very encouraging. On the climate specific, that's also true. Uh, I would say on top of that, that same group of people is very focused on aligning their careers and job choices with their values. So when they look at where do I want to work, uh, they, they are very focused on values alignment. And at the top of that list for values is climate. And, and the thing that's different there from a decade ago or 12 years ago is that climate is front and center now. 20 years ago, when I got in that game, it was really hard to find anyone who would just, you know, think anything other than Andrew's an environmentalist or he wants yep. to do environmental tech. And now people are increasingly looking at this as, the only future, it, it's not renewable energy, it's just energy and energy in the future, of course, is going to be renewable and vehicles, of course, are going to be electric. So those things become redundant as concepts. When you go down the list, of course, food is going to be sustainable. Of course, we're going to look at carbon neutral solutions for every kind of industrial uh, process. And that, I think, is a big unlock. People see climate front and center. They know that technology can make uh, make a massive difference, and the cost structures are there now to support this wholesale transformation. And it's interesting, you know, you've been um, in the solar industry for quite some time. And at that time, you know, it was not necessarily easy, I think, because it was not necessarily economically efficient, right? And I think a lot of these solutions that we are, you know, investing as investors are not necessarily economically efficient or competing with fossil fuel alternatives. But I think there's a realization that have to get there and they have to get at an accelerated pace if we're trying to reach these, you know, goals that we kind of all commonly agree on, whether that's 2050, whether that's net zero or net negative. So they're very in line with, with your thinking around that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a pretty uh, simple, logical thinker. And the chart, you know, I think you can do these two line charts for almost everything and what, you know, time and value and, or time and cost in, in some cases, when you look at the cost of fossil-based generation of anything, uh, whether it's fuel, electricity, or plastics, the, the cost over time for those things either stays flat or goes up into the right as we internalize externalities around environmental and carbon impacts. Of course, they go up into the right in a big way. And then the other chart is the cost of solar power, the cost of wind power, geothermal, bioplastics, anything. But particularly on the energy front, that cost curve is plummeting as we go across uh, to the right. And, and the reason is because there's literally, in most cases, there's no fuel cost. So it's all CapEx, zero OpEx. And of course, with any fossil fuel, there's, all fuel, you know, there's a lot of fuel cost and then embodied externalities. And so... Those two lines have already crossed on solar, they've already crossed on wind. The effective cost of, um, of wind plus storage, solar plus storage are going to cross, cross in some cases in remote cases and are, are crossing soon as well. So we can just go down the list and look for those intersections. And I think in venture, that's our job, right? We, we try to build time machines to the near future. 
You know, we try to show exactly where things are going, not 20 years from now, but in the next two to 10 years, two to five years. And, and those are all areas that we're looking at. So when you joined Obvious, you said that was a, an obvious decision uh, because you were trying to address and build a bit of a different venture firm to the ones in, let's say, Sandhill Road or other places. And specifically in Obvious, you are trying to really, you know, combine profit and impact or purpose to work together. I think it's interesting for people listening. How do you assess this purpose and impact in the companies you back? And maybe you can drill out of in your logic when you look at a company, what matters for you? What's important for you from an investor standpoint? Yeah, Marcus, that's a great, um, it's a great question. It's one that we've gotten since the inception of the firm. As we went and talked to limited partners to invest in the firm, we explained very clearly, we got we don't like the word impact. We don't want to be considered an impact uh, fund, mainly just because of the baggage of that word. It has it has some history where people used to call it concessionary investing, where you would expect to have lower returns. So I, I respect you know people who talk about double bottom lines and, and impact investing. It's really not the lane that we are in. Our view is um, very simple. If we find mission-driven, values-aligned founders who are transforming trillion-dollar industries. We believe that they're going to outperform. And if they outperform, we should be outperforming as venture investors, not making concessions and, and also not trying to burden those entrepreneurs with myriad reporting requirements or monthly um, statistics that we need them to fill out. So we don't do that, especially at the early stage. I think as you get closer to public markets, uh, certain ESG reporting is really valuable to expand your investor base. But when you're talking about a handful of people who are going to be intimately involved with helping you to build your business, we, we don't want to burden them at that point. Trying to get Diamond Foundry, you know, you're building, you're growing thousands, hundreds of thousands of diamonds in a lab, trying to get them to fill out a carbon report for that seemed a little bit silly. All we know is when you're doing it that way and you're powering it with wind, solar, and hydro, that is absolutely world positive and absolutely a better way to take that business forward. Yeah. You know, you've been in the space, as, as you mentioned, some people would call you environmentalist, Andrew, but... Why does this space particularly, you know, uh, I mean, obviously it's clear answer why I would choose because you're actually, you know, not just making a financial return as investor, but actually making a purpose during business work in real life. But why does getting to net zero or just in general, why this space matters for you on a personal level? Is there, was there some situation in life where you said when you were choosing what to do with your life that you said, okay, this is something that I want to do? Yeah, I mean, I think it just comes back to, what, what is the dent that we want to make while we're here? Mm -hmm. How do we want to um, leave a mark and hopefully leave things better um, than we found it? And I, I just feel a, a great responsibility with the world of venture. We have so much potential to really transform industries, transform lives, transform the planet for the better. So to have that opportunity and not use it for this kind of impact and change, uh, I think would just be a waste. And, and specifically around net zero, what, what I would say is two things. One, it is, um, I, I think it, it's what, mat well, to me, it's what matters most. Without it, 
we really don't have the opportunity to uh, manifest things like great life extending and life-saving technology in the health tech world. We don't have the opportunity to think about great new ways to build our cities, to build housing, to help more and more people because literally we're running out of time as a species on a planet. Mm -hmm. So first things first, right? <laughs> Let's make sure that um, we're able to exist and coexist successfully and, and then take it from there. And, and my, you know, uh, as a firm, we look at a lot of other areas too, which I think are incredibly valuable. So we are trying to cover a lot of those bases all at once, but for sure we have to um, take care of an improved way to, to live um, on the planet from a climate perspective. And then the other thing that I would say about it, that's just really exciting. I mean, in venture, um, being in fast moving waters is valuable at a certain point, but so is being contrarian. As long as your timing of that contrarian perspective is right, you can have extraordinary returns because of a contrarian point of view. And I think that many aspects of climate uh, have, have seemed contrarian uh, until late. And I think that that's going to really reward the people who have been engaged and, and have expertise now. But certainly that's my hope. And, and what, in your opinion, is the most challenging part of this, you know, world's journey to net zero? Well, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, you know, I, I would just go down the list of sort of, uh, I think we've done a really great job of electricity generation and, and um, decarbonizing it. There's, of course, a long way to go. But in the world of venture, a lot of our work is done there. Uh, there's now large infrastructure dollars that need to show up to um, take care of the stranded assets, the many, many um, thousands of coal plants that are out there and, and the natural gas next. But that's happening. I feel like that momentum is underway. I now believe that we're getting to sort of the top of the hill on uh, electrification of uh, vehicles and transport as well, at least uh, land-based vehicles and passenger vehicles. And, and then it will be uh, a much easier ride very soon. And we're seeing that with announcements from GM and Ford and others. We'll see that soon, I think, from trucks. We'll see it in marine. And then eventually we'll see it in flight. So uh, I think that a harder challenges from a technology solution set are around uh, industrial processes and, uh, and then removing the carbon that's already in the atmosphere. But those are, those are sort of the tactical um, things, that, the categories that need to be addressed. I think what's also really difficult and would be very catalytic is political will. And we are um, seem to be increasingly challenged or, or often challenged in all around the world um, in our ability to use uh, collective political will to move these balls forward. And, and there's so many pretty simple things that I think could be done uh, that would catalyze industry for sure, but would also ensure a glide path, a, a safe landing on our uh, ability to keep the runaway uh, climate change in check. Yeah, I think this is very important, I think. And this kind of resonated with, with a lot of people that I think I've spoke for this podcast. And collaboration seems to be one word that everyone mentions that not necessarily is found in other transitions. I mean, this needs a collective action by the regulators, by the investors, by even limited partner community to look at this topic, not as just, you know, another thesis, another vertical, but actually something that has to happen. And when you think about it, what's what's interesting to think is if you raise a fund in 2021, that fund lifetime is 10 years, and that's 2031. 
And to be honest, like the ambition that we currently have that is being articulated through political will, these, these are very ambitious targets, 2030, 2050. And a lot of the corporates don't sometimes even understand how aggressive they are in, in a nutshell. And a lot of these technologies don't even exist that could target. One could argue that they are to a certain extent, but not necessarily economically efficient. I think in this, in this retrospect, do you think we're moving fast enough? And do you think there's enough collaboration in the sector uh, or we could do better? No, no, yes. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think we're moving fast enough. Um, I, I don't think there's enough collaboration in the sector, and I, and I think there's a lot more to be done. But there, there's so much. Um, I mean, I love the, the Gates quote that we always overestimate what we can do in two years and underestimate what we can do in a decade. Uh, we are... We saw that in solar. You know, when I started in solar, um, it was, let's say, roughly solar installations were $10 a watt. They are now under a dollar a watt in a lot of settings. And the idea that we could get an order of magnitude lower in full install cost was something that we really honestly didn't contemplate, even in our wildest, crazy entrepreneur, not sure how we're going to do it kind of way. And, and we've done it, um, and I think we're well on our way to, at least on a panel basis, uh, get down two orders of magnitude, which is just profound. And, and that gets us to a place where it's not too cheap to meter, but it is um, cost-effective virtually anywhere in the world. So uh, we're, we're seeing that. I think we're going to see a similar level of engagement on um, electrification of vehicles. I don't mm -hmm. think people realize how quickly that transformation is going to happen. So. There's a lot more that could be done to speed uh, our transition, but we are things are going to speed up as well. Uh, there's, it's almost like tautological. Like there's no way it can't happen because the pressure uh, from nature is going to be so um, profound on humanity, and, and I think more and more people are waking up to that. Whether you're politically on the right or the left, and when those things start to converge. Uh, we can, I think people will be tripping over themselves to say that it was actually their party or, or you know, their candidacy or whatever that was the, the better leader. And that's what we need. We need that kind of competition. So you're tackling as investor very, very complicated areas, right? What do you think, what makes a great VC investor in your respect? And what features for you are important as an investor? Yeah, I mean, I think... First of all, I would ask, define great, you know, because there are, I, I've seen people do things in short-term uh, ways to have great economic gain. Um, sometimes I think uh, to their long-term detriment, and then I've seen people um, play a much longer-term game. But secondly, I would say that I'm the, the one thing I know, I, I don't have the perfect answer for you, but the, the one thing I know is that there are many ways there are many things that make great mm -hmm. investors. There are many pathways. We like to say that we're proud that um, the early partners all came from operating backgrounds, and so we mm -hmm. can relate to founders. And that that is true. But great investors like Mike Moritz, you know, was a journalist. Uh, Bill Gurley was a banking analyst. Like th these are legendary investors, and I think by virtually all measures, you, you'd have to categorize them as great investors. Yep. And, and they also took very, very different paths. I, I personally love the idea. We, we tell um, people on our team, let's be investigative journalists. <laughs> let's, let's seek the truth and use first principles in the way that we make decisions. I'm sure other people who have been wildly successful take different, you know, perspectives on that. So I would hate to say that there is one sort of 
even one group of uh, uh, characteristics that make a great investor. I think there are probably many ways to do it right. The way we operate, and we'll see as it you know over time whether it makes us great long-term investors. But we're very thematic. We we seek the truth. We try to be very reflective as a team and work together as we dig deeper and build expertise in those themes. That that's the way we do it, and we believe that that turns into playing for the long game. And and that's in venture to, to not play for the long game seems like somebody who doesn't understand the game. Yeah, I love the seek the truth part, and I think definitely uh, long termism is especially in the in a very complicated space is that you guys invest and towards a very big goal is is definitely a very important part to have in mind and repeat ourselves every day that we go to do this job. We have amazing founders and early emerging managers listening to this podcast and, and LPs. What advice do you have for our audience, uh, maybe stemming from your own experience or what do you think is relevant? Well, one of the things I love, if, um, if you have people who are early in their venture journey, I, I really love the advice I got early, which was, um, you know, take very, very big risks early on. The stakes are a little bit lower. It's actually a lot like a venture deal. You know, the downside is 1x. The upside is massive mm-hmm. if you happen to be right. And with contrarian bets, you could be leading a, the charge in a space. You know, we took early bets on electric flight. You know, we took early bets on full-stack healthcare. We took early bets on uh, comp bio and those those very contrarian perspectives uh, yeah. serve us well it's very scary doing that uh, but if you're early in your career again the, the risks are low people might just say hey great nice try it's all right let's you know next play and you move on but if you happen to be right uh, those can be career making opportunities no i love i love your portfolio i think you some, have some really really great game changing companies there You've juggling a lot of themes. You're juggling a lot of complicated things. Uh, Andrew, how, how do you stay sharp? You know, what, what do you read? What do you listen? What, what, what inspires you? Well, um, <laughs> my, my current favorite book, which I would recommend to everybody, is uh, any, anyone who cares about climate and in the near future, uh, is called Ministry for the Future uh, by Kim Stanley Robinson, a mm-hmm. terrific neuroscience fiction book. Um, a lot of fun and I didn't think I needed to read another book about climate and I was wrong. Um, it gives you a really great view of where we're headed. I, I also read, um, you know, this, this is going to make me sound really old, which I am, but <laughs> I, I read the New York times and I read the Wall Street Journal most days. And I think it's really helpful to have contextual awareness around yeah. what's going on in the world, what's going on in political centers Uh, and, you know, what are sort of macro meta trends uh, in, in the moment? And then I have a, a long list of, you know, my climate journey is Climate Tech VC, um, Exponential View is a great uh, blog that I read. And you're an avid writer yourself, actually. Quite a, word, quite a few. Yeah, I love, you know, worldpositive.com is a great, great place to read. And it's where we spend a lot of time with our own writing. Nice. No, I really like the writing. Some great, great ideas. Uh, Andrew, th- this has been great. Uh, thanks for really taking the time and sharing your journey with the community. I think this has been uh, an exciting conversation and uh, hopefully to see you soon in person. <laughs> right on, Marcus. That'd be great.
Thanks for having me. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows. 